0: Coming up on the Mark Divine Show:
1: Be anthropological and empathetic to be able to observe and listen to people operating in their natural habitats, and use that technique, which I call bottom-up research, to find and validate an unmet need, a problem that you may not have even known in detail. Start there. In fact, invest disproportionately at that stage. If you do that first stage, the C stage, well, the solve and the scale stage will operate naturally. And if you don't do that well, it's like building a house on a faulty foundation. No matter how well you try to build the house, it's not going to hold up very well.
0: Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is the Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, intelligent, resilient leaders. I speak to folks from all walks of life high-powered CEOs, meditation monks, and professors who teach entrepreneurship like my guest today, Danny Warshay from Brown University. Danny is professor and executive director at the Nelson Center for Entrepreneurship at Brown. He leads thought-provoking workshops on entrepreneurship and creativity around the world. He began his entrepreneurial pursuits while an undergrad at Brown when he was a member of a software startup team, a company called Clearview, which then was later acquired by Apple. Then he co founded and sold companies and fields ranging from software to advanced materials and consumer products and the media. Later, after being asked to return to Brown to teach entrepreneurship, he developed an entrepreneurial process that's been recognized as one of the highest rated courses on campus. And based upon that work, he's got a new book out called See, Solve, Scale How Anyone Can Turn an Unsolved Problem into a Breakthrough Success. Danny, thanks so much for joining the Mark Devine Show. Appreciate it. Uh, all the way from well, you're not at Brown right now, but that's where you're perched. I'm just a
1: mile away, so you could say. And, and out the window, I can see the Brown football stadium. So I'm kind of in the community, even when I'm working in my home office.
0: Yeah, uh, th- the closest I came to Brown when I was at Colgate was rowing crew. What's the river down there where you guys row?
1: The Seaconk River, and the crew team is is really good. The women's crew team have recently won the national championship. The men's have many times as well, um, and I know. Colgate has a fantastic crew team, uh, too. So, in fact, I often help with recruiting of crew members, and uh, I even have some swag to prove it. I have a crew hat, I have a crew sweater, and uh, it's a really interesting sport that takes a lot of dedication. It sure does. I can't imagine having done it myself, but I'm uh, somewhat in awe of the people who have, and so I'm impressed by the fact that you've done it.
0: Yeah, crew is a real gut buster, and it requires a lot of discipline and fortitude, but also cultivates those things, you know, in the in the young athletes. So I, I think it's a great sport. I was a second year at Colgate that crew existed, so it was just a club sport. So we were the pioneers who got the the crew team going uh, at the Colgate, and, and now it's a varsity sport.
1: Yeah, one of my students from my courses at Brown. Uh, Anders Weiss was a um, crew student and also was in the last two Olympics no kidding. for the U.S. crew team. And uh, boy, talk about training dedication. And right, he was a superstar student, great athlete, uh, even did his MBA in London while he was training for the Olympics. <laughs> and uh, I saw him at a book event that I was at in Boston. It was very kind of him to come. Uh, he was there with his girlfriend, who had gone to Harvard. So um, there was a little bit of cross rivalry, Ivy League rivalry there. But um, it was really nice to see Anders, and uh, he's a, an amazing person all around.
0: That's really neat. It's, it's fun to hang out with people who are achieving at that level, both athletically as well as academically or professionally. That's right. And I think it, it's kind of it becomes almost commonplace when you're in an Ivy League East Coast setting. But it's not it's not common for for most of the world. And I think it's really neat to get to talk to you. What I love about um, people in your position who've been there and done that and then go back and teach is you're you're really able to distill the practicality of the theory and, and make it relatable and applicable. And also, you know, you get people busy doing stuff. And I noticed in your latest book, C-Solve Scale, that you actually reference students who've gone out and done pretty cool things entrepreneurially, had some great success. That's right.
1: Well, first of all, I, I, I like the fact that you indicate that this is something that's meant for lots and lots of different kinds of people, many of whom I'd say have been ignored or neglected or left behind by mainstream entrepreneurship. Right. I think the statistics are pretty pathetic when it comes to certain types of people, women, people of color. And so very deliberately, I'd say the subtitle of this book, See Solve Scale, is how anyone can turn an unsolved problem into a breakthrough success. And that's what I've been teaching at Brown for all these years. We can talk about even, you know, how did you get into that? And what's it like to teach at a place that doesn't have a business school that's focused mostly on liberal arts. And that's what made me realize that the entrepreneurial process, the C-Solve Scale process that I developed 17 years ago when I got a very unexpected tap on the shoulder to come back to Brown and teach was something that anybody could learn, anybody could master. And then anybody could apply to solving a consequential problem. And you're right. Don't believe me. (laughs) I'm not credible because it's my own book. Hmm. But so much more credible are all the complete novices, uh, students who came to my classes having absolutely zero background in entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and uh, left with mastering a methodology that they then went off to. Start companies or ventures like the Casper Mattress Company, Imperfect Foods, a women's clothing company called Liberare, a women's movement called uh, the Pussyhead Project, as you know, uh, a women's supplement company called um, Premama, all sorts of really good examples. And not just in business, because remember, if entrepreneurship is a structured process for solving problems... It can cut across all different kinds of contexts and domains. And right. in the book and in my teaching, I share lots of good examples of things that aren't commercial in nature, right, right. but are still solving problems.
0: I want to come back to some of those case studies and, and maybe, you know, look at them through the lens of one or different principles that you espouse in the book. But I, I do have a question, you know, you, you made a comment earlier that um, a lot of people have been kind of left behind or left out of the entrepreneurial process. You know, my um, view is that that is true, but it's also very different, let's say, when I graduated from Colgate in 1985. You know, the access to capital, the access to knowledge and and wisdom, like what you're bringing, just didn't didn't exist. And then I have an MBA from the NYU Stern School of Business. There was not an entrepreneurship class to be found in, in a million miles. So entrepreneurship just wasn't really something that was even a career path. 20 years ago or something that you did unless you were running those weirdos like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, you know, who just just had this massive brain and this real, you know, unique kind of um, composition. And so early on, entrepreneurship was considered to be, you know, it was almost like the great man theory of leadership, right? You had to be like this special, unique attribute. And then finding capital was really hard and et cetera, et cetera. Now, because of globalization and just the Baby boomers and demographics, and what we've created primarily in this country, then exported to the world, is this capacity for pretty much anyone to start a business. And it's even getting easier and easier every year that goes by because you have technologies that are like incredibly simple to use and and almost free. You know, like when I launched navyseal.com, which is my first business, 1997, I bought the domain for for 37 bucks, but it cost me over $100,000 to build the website you know, today you can buy the domain for four bucks and you can put up the website for $9.99 a month. Anyways, what do you have to say to that? Part of, part of this to me is, is just the nature of the times and, and may those good times continue, I might add.
1: Well, I think you may be right. Certainly, there's some good tailwinds behind right. the effort to empower anybody to be problem solvers, to be entrepreneurs. You're right. I, I think the context suggests that there's room for lots of optimism. Well, first of all, we have a pretty significant list of consequential problems that we do need to have solved. And so it's a good thing that we're able to empower many more people who come from very diverse backgrounds, lots of kinds of people who would probably not have felt that entrepreneurship was their course. Maybe they did feel back then, uh, I'm kind of your era as well, I graduated from college in 1987. And there weren't a lot of startups around. Um, right. I, I went to Brown. I was a history concentrator. I was a big proponent then and now of liberal arts as the background for just about anything. And I fell into an opera. I was not one of those, you know, big heads like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Michael Dell. But I fell into an opportunity to be part of a software startup that we built up and sold to Apple. Nice. Again, this was in the late 80s. And to my students these days I have to remind them that there were actually computers in the late 80s. <laughs> That's right. But you're right. The whole content there's no such thing as you know Y combinator or nobody would know what the word accelerator meant. It was just right. something in your car that you pressed down to make the car go. None <laughs> of that context worked in our favor. I, I always say in Providence where Brown's located, we were mutants. I mean, there was no other such thing as a startup. Nobody could understand what that would have been. Yeah. Today, it's very, very common. It's built into the fabric of Brown now. I'm the executive right. director of the Center for Entrepreneurship. We have thousands of students who take our courses and our workshops. And
0: Is it primarily undergrad or
1: graduate or a combination of both? It's a combination of both. I'd say the numbers reflect Brown generally. Brown, as you know, just like Colgate is Dominantly an undergraduate institution. So I'd say the students who come through the Nelson Center tend to reflect that. But we have really amazing PhD students and master's students and medical students who are also engaging in the process of entrepreneurship. So I am very optimistic. I think today more than ever, as you say, we have lots of the context that works in our favor, lots of resources and lots of community and ecosystem accelerators I mean that's true in Providence it's true all over the world because yeah. I teach all over the world in fact yesterday I was on the phone with some people in Cairo uh, asking me to come to their entrepreneurship boot camp and summit where I speak usually every year there and now they're expanding to Riyadh Saudi Arabia so mm-hmm. that's the other big change is this is not a US centric enterprise if it ever was. True. And and that's part of the mission of the book is to debunk lots of myths that mm-hmm. I think still persist about where you have to be from, what you have to have studied, what your background needs to be, yeah. what race or gender you're from. Mm-hmm. All those are not at all true and unfortunately they hold would be really successful entrepreneurs back because they feel like they're not entitled to be involved and again, hence the title How anyone can turn an unsolved problem into a breakthrough success.
0: That's a place, a great place to kind of dive into one of the key principles. And, and, you know, I'm from the SEALs, right? And they call it SEAL teams for a reason, not SEAL individuals. And so we we know something about how elite teams kind of work and, and whatnot and the inclusivity and how everyone's voice is important. And some of the best ideas come from the most unlikely corners. So, one of the myths that I see that you dispelled right away is that you have to be a certain type of person to be an entrepreneur. In fact, it's the team that makes the teamwork that makes the dream work. Hmm. Yeah, Uh, you
1: certainly know that from the Navy SEALs in an acute way that is probably something I will never experience. So, I don't need to tell you anything about that, except that I think you're right. A big part of the emphasis of the book is if entrepreneurship is a team sport, which it tends to be only 16% of ventures are started by solo entrepreneurs and those fail more often than those started by teams. But the question is, how do you form a really successful team? And I walk you through that process. It's about following your weak ties, not your strong ones. So don't make the mistake of forming teams with friends and family because those also fail more than um, the average alternative kind of approach I've drawn lots of really good data from Noam Wasserman but you're right you touched on the two big watchwords and they're words that unfortunately have a bit of a buzzword feel to them because they're somewhat overused but they're important diversity and inclusion right. and I certainly support all the efforts of diversity and inclusion for societal impact but in the context of what makes a strong successful team in entrepreneurship it's diverse teams of every kind. They come from different backgrounds, contribute different skills. They embrace different points of view. They comprise different personality types, certainly races and genders. But it's not good enough just to be diverse. You know, the adage is diversity is about being invited to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And the evidence is really pronounced that if you have a diverse team, It doesn't actually allow people to contribute their true selves, all of what they come with, uh, their backgrounds, their skill sets, their points of view. And actually, the data suggests that diverse teams alone underperform homogeneous teams. And it's only when you have a diverse team that's invited to be their true selves, where you embrace all of what everybody brings to the table that inclusive teams outperform homogeneous and otherwise diverse teams. So it's right. really important to know all that.
0: Yeah, it makes sense and I and I love the, um, the the graphic that you have where you show that a diverse team, you know, with the three overlapping circles where everyone's focused on the differences or the sameness, you just get the you know, you get the power of that that circle where they all overlap in the middle.
1: Yeah, you just have a small area where you overlap. Right. And if you imagine otherwise a homogeneous team Actually, those homogeneous teams overlap more right. and they tend to outperform just diverse teams. It's only where you have the inclusive teams where you're embracing everything that everybody brings to the table that yep. those teams outperform. And that's work from Francis Fry and Ann Morris from Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that graphic, uh, I'm sorry, we can't show it here, but it's really a powerful way of understanding why both diversity and inclusion are really critical. And Uh, in chapter seven of the book, I walk you through some very specific insights and steps. And it's not about just relying on, you know, your close contacts and LinkedIn or Facebook, because Mm -hmm. those are your strong ties. And those will lead you to people who by and large are just like you, right? And so you won't find people who are different. You won't, if you're an extrovert, you probably won't find introverts and you need both. Mm -hmm. If you're a certain type of background, a tech person. And you're looking for somebody who's more of a humanities person. You may not because your near ties, your strong ties tend to look like you. Right. And so I recommend some approaches and I walk you through them of approaching your weak ties,
0: not your strong ones. I like that. So what if you are the founder person? You know, like I've got this idea that I think is amazing. And. um so are you suggesting that I go build a diverse and inclusive founding team, or that once I get the team up and running or the company up and running, that I, I fill the staff up with a diverse and inclusive?
1: Yeah, no, I'm talking about the evidence from founding teams too. Uh, and it's even more critical there for you to be able to set the stage, send the right signals to the rest of the team, benefit from all of the diverse kinds of input that you would get from other yeah. founders. Yeah. So very much from the beginning, you touched on something or you alluded to something, which is that, you know, if you have a really great idea, the way that I define entrepreneurship is a little bit different. It's a structured process for solving problems without regard to the resources you currently control. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a structured process for solving problems, you ought to start with what's the problem? Start with the, not the idea, but the problem. Yeah, otherwise you're what I call at risk of being a solution in search of a problem. Right. And that's a really dangerous place to be. And, and hence the three different steps, C solve, scale starts with the first one, which is C. And that means be anthropological and empathetic to be able to observe and listen to people operating in their natural habitats and use that technique, which I call bottom-up research, to find and validate an unmet need, a problem that you may not have even known in detail, start there. In fact, mm-hmm. invest disproportionately at that stage. If you do that first stage the C stage well, the solve and the scale stage will operate naturally. And if you don't do that well, it's like building a house on a faulty foundation. Right. No matter how well you try to build the house, it's not going to hold up very well. So You're trying to fit your
0: solution to a problem that may be better solved with some other. Exactly.
1: The first step has to be C. Um, And and I see the alternative a lot, especially among tech people. My professor appointment is in engineering, and so I'm surrounded by tech people. And they're often very excited about all the new technology they're developing. And then they go out and look for a problem for it to solve, rather than starting with a problem and then inventing something that can uh, solve it.
0: Yeah, I, I, that's, I can see that a lot with uh, academic kind of entrepreneurial initiatives that you know, are trying to take internally derived innovation and spin it out into a, you know, an entrepreneurial venture. That is probably a classic problem where you have this tech and now we're like searching for a solution. to. I think it, it is. is. You're right.
1: Unfortunately, I see it beyond academia too. I do a lot of work advising and doing workshops in big companies and they're guilty of it too. You know They have homegrown technology or products or a legacy of a whole product line, Mm -hmm. and they then go look out for problems to solve rather than doing what I learned really well after business school. I went to Harvard Business School, and then I worked at Procter & Gamble for a while. I didn't imagine that my work at P&G would have resonance later on in the entrepreneurship work I'm doing, but it does because P&G is great at doing that upfront research to observe and listen to people in their own habitats to figure out what problems to solve. In fact, in that section of the book, the first stage C, I share 2 PNG examples about products that are very well known. Your whole audience would know them. They're really surprising, the stories. They're really kind of fun and entertaining. And they're really memorable. Lots of my students come back and say, do you still tell the tide story? Do you mm-hmm. still tell the dawn story? Because they're very memorable, kind of entertaining ways of remembering that you have to start by Observing people in their own habitats, not just asking them, but observing them as an anthropologist would to figure out what problem to solve.
0: Yeah, I love the story of the your two students who hung out in the aisle of Whole Foods or whatever the store was. Right. And and learned that women, you know, just didn't like a particular product. You know, Right. right. They
1: hated taking prenatal vitamins. Right. And by the way, you mentioned crew, the CEO of that company, which evolved from the course, it's called Pre Mama. Dan Azes Dan was on the National Championship Brown crew team. Okay, And um, yeah. what makes that story even better, uh, although eventually I encouraged them to have a diverse team, just like we were saying, but it was four guys, four athletes who knew nothing about what a prenatal vitamin was. right? And they used this bottom-up research process that I teach in the book, in the C-stage, to observe and to listen and to discover that women coming into Whole Foods who were pregnant or sexually active looking to get pregnant hated prenatal vitamins they were they knew they had to take them for the health of their babies but they made them constipated and nauseated they were difficult to swallow they tasted yeah. bad they were broadcasting to everybody that they were pregnant they figured out those were the problems and then in the solve stage i put them in touch with some product development people whom i know and they completely overhauled the way you take a prenatal vitamin Instead of a big horse pill, you take it through these powder packets. Mm-hmm. And then they did some other bottom-up research to figure out other problems that women were facing. They had, again, diversified their team and uh, were much better suited to do what I suggested earlier. And they've outpaced lots of the main, otherwise mainstream supplement companies who had more traditional ways of delivering those products. And what I love about that story, and I'm so glad you remembered it, is that it demonstrates you don't have to be P&G in order to do this kind of right. bottom-up research. In fact, I find my undergraduate students the best at doing it because they don't know any better. They're happy That's to right. observe and to listen. They don't
0: have all the, the, the biases and, and the, the thought patterns that you might find in the internal teams that are trying to solve these problems from a PG or something like that.
1: Exactly right. And, and it also illustrates this tension I describe in the book, which is often a surprise to people this concept of the benefits of scarce resources and the burden of abundant resources. And we can talk about that more if you like.
0: Yeah, I was actually, that was the next jump off for me is, you know, you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, well, that sounds great, Danny, but you know, I don't really, I'm not sitting on a war chest and I'm not really sure where to go. And, you know, I I, I raised some money for my first business, which is a microbrewery, but everything else, I've really kind of been a scrapper. And it's there's been pros and then there's been cons because there's a point in time where you do want to go after some money to be able to scale once you've solved the problem, right? And uh, and, you, and you need to grow that team out. But there are a lot of benefits to having scarce resources early on. So you really just have to get laser focused on you know figuring out a solution that will work and figuring out how to scale it before you waste a lot of money. Exactly. The scale stage.
1: In order to scale, that's when you might want to layer on some additional resources once you're really clear on what the solution is that's worthy of additional resources, but usually that's not immediate. In fact, once you've found and validated that problem that's worthy, worthy of solution in that first C stage, like the pre-mama team did, then you move to the solve stage and you iterate Mm -hmm. and you figure out how to take some small steps forward. You're usually not going to be successful right away. And that's something that entrepreneurs have to tolerate, the tolerance for some failure, but it's iterative. Mm -hmm. And then once you do figure out how to solve the problem, and it takes a little while, only then I recommend layering on some additional resources. But in the stage where you, in the first two stages, when you're just figuring out what the problem is, and then especially in the second stage where you're iterating, scarce resources provide you discipline to fail fast and fail cheap, as the saying goes, to iterate quickly and to discover an innovative solution with, that, it, that might be worth scaling. Mm-hmm. Scarce resources also motivate you to collaborate with other people who bring complementary skills and experience. So that's also a way that you might bring in some diversity by looking for other people to collaborate with. And those people in exchange Require you to share the risks and rewards of your venture. So, that is related to the team issue we discussed. On the other hand, and it's I know somewhat paradoxical, it's surprising, abundant resources, especially in the see and solve stage, can hinder you. Mm-hmm. And that's true at the kinds of big companies we talked about. They force you to be conservative because you were focused on preserving those resources, they prevent you from seeing new opportunities and innovations. And you might become too fixed on a particular outcome. They may make you overconfident. You know, some of the companies you're envisioning before, the established players, you might think, oh, well, this is the way that it has to work. And we're really good at that. I talk about a newspaper company called Knight Rider mm-hmm. um, in the book. And that to me is a really good example of a company that got overconfident because they thought, well, we're a newspaper company and nothing can touch us. And then came along the internet, and it was actually the young startups who had scarce resources that did better. I mentioned the Casper Mattress Company. It was started by two of my former students, Luke Sherwin and Neil Parikh. At the time the book came out just a few months ago, they were doing $400 million in sales in a public company. They completely revolutionized the way that a mattress company worked, how it sold the product online instead of an awkward showroom mm-hmm. how it was delivered in a box rather than you know through some delivery vehicle that you had to meet uh, a 100 night trial they knew nothing about mattresses except that you sleep on them
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was their example of a scarce resources they also had no money no capital but in the early days it disciplined them to take a few steps correct, course, correct, hypothesize. And when it got time for them to realize, oh, we're onto something, we've revolutionized the way the mattress industry could work. They had a lot of people willing to share their resources. That's the second part of the definition, right? Remember, the definition is a structured process for solving problems without regard to the resources currently controlled. And so all the listeners out there, you mentioned, are worried. Well, this all sounds good, but I don't have a big trust fund, I don't have a big bank account. Actually, they're in a better position than the people who have too many resources. Yeah. And that's yeah. often the challenge I find when I work with big companies because they they get arrogant and overconfident and they think, yeah. well, our resources will work in our favor and they usually
0: work against them. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Divine show. To hear a short message from one of our partners, and now back to the show. You know, any uh, entrepreneurship program that I've kind of stumbled across uh, in, a, in a university setting, you know, usually has like fundraising and you know venture capital uh, classes and you know stuff like that. How to do rapid innovation and agile stuff like that, and I think that um, focusing on those as an entrepreneur is a real problem, and and you're kind of like reinforcing that with this principle that abundant resources is a burden. I was part of a a software company brought in as an interim CEO, and then we went and raised a lot of money, right? So I think 8 or $10 million from Sequoia Ventures, and Sequoia brought in a new CEO and charged him with spending all that money, and they did. And so a year and a half later, they were out of money again, and they still they hadn't been, figured out how, you know, we weren't ready for that money, in other words, and so it became a burden. So if you, if you focus on raising money as your first action, you're wrong. Right, and, then,
1: and that money will bias you toward making decisions that you would not make if right. you didn't have that money. Exactly. And you can't fail fast and fail cheap if you have Sequoia's $10 million dollars that they've invested, that they want you to spend. They want you to spend it, yeah. And they want you to spend it in a certain direction mm-hmm. that attracted the money in the first place. It's not impossible, but it's much harder to go back to the board, to go back to Sequoia and say, our hypothesis was wrong. We're sorry we've invested your $7 million at that point. We'd like to change course with the leftover $3 million. They expect you to invest and get it right. And instead, I acknowledge that you're not going to get it right. Right. Rather than trying to line up the perfect one putt, just acknowledge that it's going to be a three putt and do it quickly and inexpensively. And eventually, when you know what the solution is, yeah, that's the time when it's probably reasonable to raise the $10 million from Sequoia. But you're absolutely right. The mismatch is people often tend to leap from C to scale. Right. And they forget this middle part, which is actually where all the innovative action is. And I share techniques like the uh, nominal group technique, which helps you integrate people who are both extroverts and introverts, some of the work done in groups, some of the work done individually. I share an amazing technique, a really
0: fun one too, called systematic inventive thinking. I wanted to talk about that because that reminded me a lot of uh, something called TRIZ, which I studied a a while ago which is a theory of invention. Does it come from TRIZ?
1: You are absolutely right. It comes from TRIZ and uh, it's the same basis. Okay. Uh, In in systematic inventive thinking, like TRIZ, the founders studied tens of thousands of patents Mm -hmm. and they reverse engineered what are the patterns, that the the innovation patterns that these innovators used to come up with these breakthroughs and these patents. And it boiled down to five. We don't have time to go through all of them, but they're really interesting to see. One is called subtraction, Mm -hmm. where you make a list of all the key components of a product or service that you want to innovate, and you remove one of the key components. And it has to be a key component. It can't be like, you know, change the color. Right. So an example might be, you know, you look at how banking was done a little while ago with bank tellers in person at a bank. And you might say, okay, let's remove the bank teller. Now, what do we have left in those components? Well, that could be the basis of forming ATMs. Right. Or even these days, take out the ATM. Well, you might have you know something on your phone that allows you to scan and mm-hmm. do everything on your phone. So there's five techniques, five creativity innovation patterns that systematic inventive thinking uses. And I walk you through all of them. In fact, at the end of the audio book, I narrated the audiobook version too. At the end, I have a bonus section with one of the founders of Systematic Inventive Thinking, Amnon Lavav, and some really interesting insight comes from him. That's also available on my website, DannyWarshay.com. But that's an example of a structured process. Right. Sit, Systematic Inventive Thinking, belies the idea that brainstorming, just throwing a bunch of stuff up in the air. In a random way will produce anything useful. No, it asks you to be really strict about these structured processes, these five patterns. And it's amazing what comes out the other end. So again, I I don't assume that anybody's born knowing how to be an entrepreneur, any of the three stages, the C, solve or scale. Mm -hmm. I walk you through a process, a whole bunch of processes
0: that are things that anybody can learn, they can master, and then they can apply. I love that. And I, I was deeply inspired by that, you know, systematic innovation because it, it kind of blows a hole in the, in the common theory that genius is a born trait and, uh, you know, it's, it's rare. That's one of those myths,
1: again, that I'm very explicit about debunking. We talk about that right up front in the introduction, that entrepreneurship is not something you're born with. It is something that anybody can learn. Otherwise, I remember when I was first asked to teach at Brown, it was in the engineering school, and I thought, well, what would it mean to teach entrepreneurship? And I remember this phrase, entrepreneurial spirit. You've mm-hmm. heard entrepreneurial spirit? yeah, I, have. Yeah, I certainly remember. Yeah, and I thought, I don't know what the heck that is. <laughs> and I certainly don't know how to teach a spirit. And I said, imagine in engineering, if we were asked to teach somebody how to build a bridge. We wouldn't say, you know what, just go out there and have the bridge building spirit. And if the cars and the trucks come crashing down to earth, then just have more spirit. That would be nuts. We wouldn't be uh, allowed to teach anybody anything. Instead, in bridge building, you can distill some fundamental principles that all bridges have in common a beginning, a middle, and an end with lots of room for all types of bridge variation, functional, aesthetic, operational. Mm -hmm. And I thought there must be similarly a coherent process that I could distill from basic principles of entrepreneurship. And it also could have a beginning, a middle, and an end with lots of room for variation of lots of different kinds of startups. And that's the basis of the seesaw Scale method. Like you wouldn't say that, oh, you'd have to be born with genius talent to build a bridge. Or if somebody wanted to be a French pastry baker, You wouldn't say, oh, well, they're not born as a French pastry baker. You would say, no, you could teach them how to, like, what's the recipe? What do I do first? What do I do second? And why should entrepreneurship be any different? It's not this mystical, you know, spirit that only certain people have access to. I know from now having over 3,000 students, some of whom I've just mentioned, that anybody can learn it, they can master it, and they can apply
0: it. Yeah. Well, what I would say, if I were to be in like point counterpoint discussion with you is kind of back to how we started this is that the reason entrepreneurial spirit was even talked about in the early days was because the risk was so high. And so you had to have an adventurous spirit. You had to have a risk-taking attitude and orientation in order to even consider going into uh, an entrepreneurial adventure. And nowadays, it's just a very, there have been so many pioneers that now who have settled the entrepreneurial land and, and come back to teach and to share capital and share ideas and to support entrepreneurs and that it's, it's a very different risk factor or risk equation. And so it's much more accessible. There are people like you who have developed roadmaps that say, you know, here's the steps. And so um, now it, it doesn't require as much of a risk-taking, adventurous spirit where you're risking your entire life savings or your reputation you know it's and, and i can even say the same thing about military special ops you know when i went in the seals in, in 1989 you know i was mba cpa and i turned my back it was a, it was a huge risk to turn my back on all that and then my family business which was back east and had been around for over 100 years you know so i was basically turning my back on the money uh, my best friends from colgate are running huge organizations you know one of my one of my best friends is chairman ceo global chairman ceo of ey the other one CFO at BlackRock. These guys made it big and I was turning my back on all of that. It was massive risk. And yet, you know, I came out of that experience and able to integrate my business experience with my Navy SEAL experience with, you know, a lot of my other stuff that I've uh, worked on training and, and created business around that. And I'm catching up, right, when it comes to the financial piece. Well, but,
1: I mean, what, what an amazing model you are for lots of people. That's right. That's kind of my point. It reminds me of another principle that I talk in, about in the book. And I think you're a good example. It's this Japanese word, ikigai. Ikigai, yeah, that's right. I love which that. is about living a life
0: with purpose or meaning. That's right. And you certainly did that. That was that was the calling. Yeah, that was the calling to, to follow a purpose, right?
1: Right. And so, you know, ikigai is these four things. It's do something you're really good at that might be drive. Mm-hmm. Do something you really love that might be passion. Do something that has purpose. Um, that is going to add some useful meaning to the world and do something that's going to pay you fairly for the value you add. And I think, you know, you you knew that in yourself in 1989, which I think is unusual, but somehow you did identify, I don't know if you
0: thought about it in Ikigai terms. I didn't come across that until much later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought about it in a, in a similar fashion though, with even three different diagrams. One was purpose. One was passion, which both of those are an EKI. And the third was my principles or my values, which became my ethos. And then I said, at the center point of that is something that is my calling. And so I I didn't look at it in terms of a career or a profession or an avocation. It was a calling. And so that calling was to be a warrior. And once I got clear on on the calling, the profession started to define itself. I think
1: that's great, and you know, I wish more of my students could learn from that too. But it's a really important section of my teaching and of the book. I talk about it now up front, the very first day of class. There's a whole section in the book because, nice. Let's face it, you could learn the see, solve, scale method, but if it's not something that meets those four icky criteria, if it's right. not something you're good at, if it's not something you love, if it's not something that's purposeful, if it's not something that's going to pay fairly you're just not going to be successful, right? or at least the odds are much lower that you will. And I even talk about a case study in the book of somebody who came to me when I was a venture capital and in a very academic way, had all the boxes checked, looked like he had nailed every element of the C-Solve scale process. And I chose not to invest because I could tell that this pursuit was not his icky guy. Yeah. And there's other really good examples. A woman named Emma Butler who was shaking on the first day of class, she says, I had her write her own section of the book because she's, she wrote it so much better than I would have. There's videos of her on my website. She's created an adaptive clothing company for women who have different shaped bodies that make it difficult and painful for them to use mainstream clothing. It's doing incredibly well. And it's so clear that it's iki guy. Right, Ben Chesler from Imperfect Foods was also one of my students. You know, his mission was how do you reduce food waste? Right. He, sh- he learned that 40 percent of all U.S. produce is thrown out at the farm level because it doesn't look traditional. Right. It's perfectly ripe and nutritious, but it's thrown out. And he created this imperfect foods company that's raised over 200 million dollars from venture capitalists. It's doing over $250 million in sales. Incredible. It employs 1,500 people across 43 states. And the thing that he will tell you in the book and also on a short video on my website is most important to him and his team is that they've saved well over 100 million pounds of food that otherwise would have gone to waste. There's tremendous impact on climate change through all those kinds of things. Right. It is very clear if you listen to Ben or Emma. That they are pursuing their icky guy, right? And so I like mentioning that, and I don't always talk to somebody like you who lived that so well and so obviously early in their life, and as as you say, that led to a career. But it's so central to uh, the teaching that I do and to the book I wrote because I know it's not an academic pursuit. It's right. really important that this is something that you really love.
0: Hundred percent, and I agree that that this principle of Aligning with your passion, purpose, your calling. This Ikigai principle is central to what well, we teach, and we couch it in the terms of the hero's journey. And so, like, if you're gonna if you're gonna go in and, and commit your life to starting a venture, you're on a hero's journey, and you're going to have to go on a series of quests to you know to overcome certain challenges, and those are mostly going to be around your your emotional maturity to be the person worthy of leading this team to the other side of the the ground that you're trying to get to. But also, the company is going to go, go through some serious challenges in crucibles. And they call that the dark night of the soul moment in the hero's journey. And, and that's when, if you don't have a strong why, you know, like Simon said, it all starts with why. If you don't know what that why is, because you haven't aligned your Ica guy with your entrepreneurial pursuit, then it's very easy to quit. It absolutely
1: is. And I love Simon Sinek's work. In fact, I quote it in the book. Yeah. I have all my students watch his TED Talk on Start With Why. The value proposition elements I talk about in the second stage, solve, are what are you developing? Who is it for? And most important, why should somebody care? And sometimes, right. again, people miss that, and it's the most important thing. I love
0: that. Danny, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, your book, See, Solve, Scale, How Anyone Can Turn an Unsolved Problem into a Breakthrough Success, where would you like people to go to learn more about the book, learn more about your work, etc.?
1: I think the I'll share a link with you, but the best, easiest way to say it here is my website, dannywarshay.com, D-A-N-N-Y-W-A-R-S-H-A-Y.com. There's a whole section about the book, Mm -hmm. lots of bonus material, including short video clips from some of the students I had mentioned here. Mm -hmm. And also there's a separate LinkedIn readers group that's been formed you just search for C-Solve Scale on LinkedIn. And there's people from all over the world, which is really interesting and gratifying. And it's my deliberate way of trying to nudge people together who come from different points of view, Mm -hmm. who might be able to support and collaborate with each other. So I think those are the two best ways. And people often ask, how do you reach me? A lot of people are reaching me through my website, dannywarshay.com, or LinkedIn is a good way too. Awesome.
0: And I love that you mentioned earlier that it's not just for entrepreneurship, you know, outwardly starting a venture that could go do something in the world, but entrepreneurship in- uh, also. And even in, the, you, fi- you said there's, you're finding interest within the military and government agencies and like, using this book as a means for innovation internally in an organization, right?
1: It's true. Um, last week, I did the first of what will be a series of workshops on c scale for the U.S. Air Force.
0: Mm-hmm. The yeah.
1: Army's also also... Um, Engaging me to do some things. I, I had no idea that the military would find this appropriate or interesting. You certainly have a better point of view on that than I. And then yesterday I was in touch with a very large restaurant franchisor. Everybody would know their name. They want me to help train their franchisees. And then I work with governments all over the world. I mentioned Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East and Palestine and in Israel. I teach at Tel Aviv University, usually each summer. And then I work with, um, you know, the U.S. Embassy in Bahrain, big companies, nonprofits, all of whom see that they have to solve problems and realize that their workforce isn't born knowing how to do that. And so I think that's probably why the Air Force has asked me to do that, too, because they realize that their Air Force people are trained in really expert ways militarily, but they don't necessarily have a new approach to identifying and solving problems. And that's what right. we're working on.
0: And like you said earlier, there's no shortage of problems to solve in the world. So
1: We certainly need more problem solvers. And so that's my own icky guy. If I think back on my own career, I think, wow, you know, uh, I've been really thankful that I got that fateful tap on the shoulder 17 years ago to come back to Brown and teach because I've had the opportunity, as I said, to teach over 3000 students. And as I've indicated, they're doing all sorts of amazing things to change the world. And I know I'm better off for it. And, um, I hope we all are.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're better off for your work and your book. Uh, thanks so much for sharing um, your insights with us today. Super appreciate it. And, uh, I'm going to go out and I've got a copy of the hard copy, but I love when I can listen to a book in, especially in the author's voice. I imagine you read it. Did you read the, I did.
1: You know, that was a weird thing. I've never narrated. A, I never wrote a book. It's before. tricky. Yeah. Gonna, I've
0: done four of them now. And it's like it's okay. a lot of work, right? Isn't it?
1: Yeah. It was my students who put me up to writing the book in the first place They oh, said, Professor Warshay, you're not doing this third step. You're not scaling. And I right? said, oh, you're right. And then uh, the publisher said, we'd like you to narrate the book. And I said, I've never done that. And they said, no, no, it's your material. You're used to teaching. Who else would do it? And I said, well, if you can't get Morgan Freeman, then okay. I'll do it. But it was during COVID. And so they had to ship me a makeshift studio to set up in my basement. And for oh. seven days straight, we had six and seven hour sessions yeah. with a audio engineer and a theatrical director on with me weighing on every word. And if I swallowed a syllable, they said, no, 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 go back. We have to do that section over. So it was a really hard, but really ultimately gratifying process. And people have told me they enjoy the book in in both formats the funny thing is i had no idea how many people buy audiobooks i said what percentage of this book will be audio it's the fastest
0: growing segment it's huge right and
1: they said it could be 50% of this book will be audio and i had no idea so there's some companion yeah. additional material that comes with it and including the bonuses that i mentioned before um, but mark this has been a real wonderful opportunity to get to know you and your work thank you for all you're doing to uh, you. make the world a better place and I'm honored to have been on your show today.
0: Yeah, likewise. I really appreciate your time. And uh, we will get this out there and, and we'll let you know when we go live so that you can uh, share it with your students or on your website or, or wherever, wherever you might do that. All right. Thank you, sir. Man, that was a fantastic interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to Danny about the principles behind C, solve, scale and the benefits of scarce resources over abundant resources. Uh, having to have an inclusive team, not just a diverse team, and not really going at it to try to scale your business until you found a problem and then you've learned how to solve that problem, which is going to take a fail forward fast, fail cheap, and iterate quickly kind of mindset. Very, very interesting uh, show. Super stoked to listen to the audiobook, see Solve Scale, and to stay connected with Danny. Show notes will be up on our website at markdevine.com, and you can reach out to me on social media at MarkDivine on Twitter and at RealMarkDivine on Instagram and Facebook. The uh, video version will be up on our YouTube channel. If you're not receiving our weekly newsletter, Divine Inspiration, consider subscribing at markdivine.com. Each week, I'll send you my written blog and the show notes for the podcast and other really interesting things that I think you'd find useful and interesting. Shout out to my amazing team, Q Williams, Jason Sanderson, and Jeff Haskell who help produce this podcast and bring incredible guests like Danny to you every week. Reviews and ratings are very, very helpful, so consider rating and reviewing this show wherever you listen to it. It'll help other people find it and continue to give us the credibility and the motivation to keep charging forward. The world is changing fast. We're all on another hero's journey post-pandemic. I think our entire culture is on a hero's journey, and if you want to learn how to dominate a hero's journey and to overcome the crucibles of your life, then join us at SealFit in 2023 where we have a year long hero's journey with four different quests. Each quest is a 90 day challenge where you'll have a hybrid of an online challenge with coaching, group coaching, and an event. And each one of these is themed. The first quarter will be get SEAL fit. So you want to learn how to train and think like a Navy SEAL. That's the first quest. The second quest is to be unbeatable. This is the integrated five mountain development of Unbeatable Mind. The third quest is the search for the inner warrior. We'll teach you the Principles to find your inner Sat Guru, your inner spiritual guide, and the fourth quest is to be sheepdog strong, so that you can take care of leading in crisis or under extreme pressure. And we'll teach you uh, quick reaction self defense, how to think and act with confidence under pressure, and how to take care of any medical scenario that might uh, come your way, either to yourself or others, so that you can be part of the solution. So, hope to see you there. Go check it out at sealfit.com/show. And uh, thank you again for your support. Thank you for being part of the solution in the world and for paying it forward. Till next time, this is Divine.